Hello, you're listening to a high speed training podcast. Welcome to the podcast about keeping children safe in education, developed for professionals working with children. The podcast will guide you to be aware of the keeping children safe in education changes for 2022, the implications it will have in your setting, and we'll also take a look at some recent safeguarding issues. My name is Charlotte Leeming and I'm your host for today and in this podcast we'll be talking to Joanna Nicholas. Joanna is a social worker by profession and now a safeguarding consultant. She's worked in social care for nearly 30 years. She's been leading serious case reviews, now child safeguarding practice reviews for 14 years. She undertakes assessments of individuals working in a position of trust with children and on the back of everyone's invited has been involved in safeguarding reviews of schools. She also works with universities, is a member of the Prince's Trust Safeguarding Advisory Panel, a published author and a board member of CASCAS. Joanna is working with High Speed Training on some of our safeguarding courses, so we hope that you reflect on your current practice and be more aware of the practice of those around you. Welcome to the podcast, Joanna. Your introduction there just shows how much experience you have in this field. So I know our listeners will really value your insights as we've got a lot to cover. Can I start by asking you about the difference then between safeguarding and child protection? Hello, Lottie. It's lovely to be here. And that's such a brilliant question to start with because it's so important. And what's happened over the years is people have conflated the two and they're completely different. Safeguarding is the overall well-being of a child and everybody is responsible for safeguarding children and all schools and colleges are. And then within that, we have child protection. And that is when there is a concern that a child has or is likely to suffer significant harm, so abuse. And then it becomes the responsibility of the local authority to be the lead professional. So child protection is about prevent is about abuse Safeguarding is the overall well-being. So two completely different things. So if we look at this new document that's come out, let's talk about one of the first things that jumped out at you. This is peer-on-peer abuse. That's been changed now, Joanna, hasn't it, to child-on-child abuse. Why is this? Um, it's partly because in the last iteration, they use both terms and then people got a bit confused about it because peer on peer can be adult to adult as well. And also they've incorporated um, the Department for Education's guidance on sexual violence and sexual harassment between children in schools and colleges into the new um, Keeping Children Safe in Education. And so they're now just using that term. And also it reminds schools and colleges that it doesn't have to be peers. It's not necessarily people in the same age group or the same class. It can be between different ages. So better, greater clarity. Just about to say, Joanna, you think that is better? Absolutely, much clearer. So another really useful addition in the guidance is the fact that um, under child on child abuse, it talks about the importance of explaining to children that the law is in place to protect rather than to criminalise them. And again, children are very worried about coming forward because they're worried about the consequences. And that's a useful addition and really important that schools make this really, really clear to children um, that laws are there to protect them and it's not it's not about criminalising them. Excellent. Now, The only problem is, do you think a child will always disclose they are being abused? Uh, No, they absolutely won't. We know they won't. And what's helpful is that there is new guidance um, in 
in the new Keeping Children Safe in Education, which I'm going to refer to as Kixie because schools and colleges know what Kixie is. So, um, and it saves us lots of time repeating the same thing. So, Joanna, just to be clear, tell us Kixie, that is Keeping Children Safe in Education. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. So in terms of disclosures, they're now um, including guidance on making it clear that a child may not be ready or feel ready or know how to tell someone they're being abused. But the other part that they don't talk about, which is important for schools and colleges to bear in mind as well, is that a child might not know they're being abused. Lots of children don't know. So there are all sorts of reasons why children don't disclose that they are being abused, um, even if they, they know that they are. And do you think in these guidelines there are things there to help appropriate people to, to spot it and, and help those children that won't necessarily disclose it to a teacher or an adult? Um, I hope that anybody working in a school or college is very mindful of relationships. It's all about relationships and a child feeling that they have an adult in that school. And again, just to be clear, we always talking we're talking about schools and colleges. I'm just going to say schools again for brevity. But it's all about relationships and there may well be somebody in that school who that child feels they can trust if they know that they are being abused. Joanna, what should be included in the policies and procedure for low level concerns, you know, concerns which don't meet the harm threshold? Yes, it's interesting because people get a bit confused about the low level concerns because in the guidance they're specifically talking about um, low-level concerns about teachers and people working in the school because what we've learnt from reviews is that there are individuals about whom there have been lots of very low-level concerns but not meeting that threshold for actually doing something about it. So you should always have a very clear record of any concerns about a teacher having a favourite child, for example, um, showing any sort of favouritisms, familiarity, um, sort of the tapping a child on the bottom, something that isn't necessarily going to trigger a very serious response, but you need to have that pattern of behaviour. And then we also, it also refers to low level concerns with regard to early help and early intervention and looking at the child and intervening early and not waiting for something big and huge to happen before you start thinking what needs to happen here. And we've seen that more details been added this time on domestic abuse. In what way is that impacting children? It's absolutely brilliant that the guidance is now including greater clarity because we know more and more and more about the impact of domestic abuse on children. And it's also important to be clear that they're using that that we now have a legal definition of domestic abuse, which is relatively new. And that talks about a child experience domestic abuse, because a lot of people think that it's only if the child is witnessing it, if they're seeing it. But the research shows us that it's even worse for children to be hearing, not seeing, because their mind is imagining terrible things that might be even worse than what's happening. And schools play such a vital part in this. Domestic abuse has a huge impact on children. It affects the development of their brain. So it changes them physiologically as well. And we need to recognise the impact on children. Joanna, could that be again something that a child wouldn't be very forthcoming about in that school environment? 
Absolutely, because a child, first of all, a child thinks what's happening in their home happens in every home, whether that is you've got five ponies in a swimming pool or your mother's injecting heroin into her groin. And children are very, very protective of their parents too. And they're worried about what the consequences might be if they tell anybody about what's going on at home. There are so many reasons why children would be very wary about talking about things that are going on at home. Very interesting, Joanna, that yes, that child might think that that is normal when it's anything but. Um, how how does staff help that child open up about that? Again, it comes back to relationships, Lottie. It's all about relationships and, and a child feeling that they can trust that individual and schools being really clear about co- what consequences are. If you do disclose something, what's likely to happen? We know children have told us again and again Tell us what's going to happen. Let us know what the consequences are. Talk to us about it and and dispel some of the myths there are about what could happen if you as a child share your concerns about what's going on at home. Now, if we move on to governors and trustees, they're going to get safeguarding training too, aren't they? What will that look like? Uh, It will vary hugely. What it should look like, what it needs to look like, is it needs to be of a high enough quality that those governors are able to ensure and be confident that the school's policies and procedures that they have in place are working and effective. And I've done too many reviews of schools where governors just haven't had that knowledge to do that assessment. So it's all about the quality of the training that the um, that the school uses for the trustees. And Joanna, is there, it's more like an overview rather than a frontline staff, isn't it, their training? They've got to have a a big picture, haven't they, of what is happening in the the school? Yes, they need a big picture. They need to know where the risks are, where the vulnerabilities are, um, what the school is doing. They need to be confident that the designated safeguarding lead has the knowledge and experience to be in that role. They've got the capacity, they've got the time to fulfil that role and to make sure that the policies and procedures are lived and breathed in that school. Now, one of the most notable recommendations this time is the need for an appropriate adult to be present if a pupil is interviewed by the police. What's this going to entail then, Joanna? Really interesting question, Lottie. And the honest answer is we don't know yet because always to date, an appropriate adult... So when a child's interviewed in a, in a um, prison cell, for example, you have to have an appropriate adult there. It would be a social worker. It's usually a social worker, a parent or a guardian. Now, social workers are not going to have the capacity to go into schools to fulfil that role in a school unless the school's employing a social worker themselves, which sometimes they do. So it will have to then most likely be a parent or a guardian who fulfills that role. And it's absolutely essential. This comes from the child Q case, which schools will be very aware of. And it's absolutely vital that children are always interviewed with an appropriate adult present. Would a teacher, Joanna, feel at all concerned, a little anxious if the sort of the navigating the balance, I guess, between, you know, the police, the power of the police and then the care and concern for their pupil? Yes, and it could be that the that schools decide that they're going to train people specifically to become the appropriate adult. Um, but the police will be very mindful of the change in, in the statutory guidance that there needs to be an appropriate adult present. Um, and so all professionals have a responsibility to ensure that happens. Now, there have been a few changes in the safer recruitment processes. So can you tell us a little more about that? 
Um, I can, absolutely, that it's now saying it's it's recommending digital screening of potential new staff. Um, that opens up a potential minefield. Um, I am not an expert in employment law, but that is a recommendation. Interesting, that not a requirement. So that's to look at and to explore. And they're also saying now that it's no longer sufficient just to have a CV, that you need to also complete the application form. Um, so there will be situations where schools will need to take legal advice in those areas. But those are the changes in the latest iteration of Kixi. So looking at sort of a candidate's background, their social media, what they've done in the past. So do you, do you think that's a good addition, even though it's a recommendation, as you say, not a requirement, isn't it? I I would say I don't have the, the knowledge or the expertise to answer that question fully because you have to always balance right to private family life and um, and making sure it's relevant to that application. And I guess so many companies in all walks of life now do this, don't they? So I guess it's just keeping in line with other industries. Well, Joanna, let's move on now to the 2022 um, update. It links the Human Rights Act of 1998 and Equality Act 2010 legislation to safeguarding. So what particular points to education staff need to be aware, aware of with this? It's really, um, it's mostly around the protected characteristics and the fact that um, schools must take positive action and proportionate action to make sure that they are making reasonable adjustments for children with disabilities. And another example they give is supporting girls where there's evidence they're being disproportionately subjected to sexual violence or harassment. So it's all about the protected characteristics and ensuring that children with any of these characteristics are not disadvantaged in the school setting and also recognising their potential vulnerabilities. Do you think that was very much needed in 2022? Absolutely, we know it is. We know on the back of Everyone's Invited, we know so much about um, about sexual harassment and violence that, that's happening in schools um, and about discrimination. Um, child on, it goes back to child-on-child child abuse um, and it can it can come from staff as well um, of children of some children with protected characteristics. Can you tell us then about schools and colleges' role in preventative education, Joanna? So preventative ed- education is a huge part of what schools are doing and what we need schools to be doing, and it puts now it puts much greater emphasis on them and the requirement to create a culture of zero tolerance in the school. And they specifically name sexism, misogyny, misandry, homophobia, biphobia, and sexual violence and harassment. What's so important for a school is how they deliver that curriculum within the school and who they use to deliver it. Because again, it's all about quality and it can't just be ticking a box. It has to be more than that. And it has to tie in with um, with all their pastoral support system, with their behaviour policy, all these things need to tie in, but it is so much about quality of that curriculum and how it's delivered. And Joanna, that's a lot to put on top of just, as you say, the curriculum, isn't it? And everything else the schools have to do. So how do uh, how does a school and the staff manage all this to make sure that their children are being safe and, and protected? It is, you're right, Lot. it is a huge responsibility that's being added to schools 
and schools will know better than I that they're just being asked to do more and more and more and more and more. I would say it 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 can never be about ticking a box. Yes, they are being asked to do more, but we need really, really, really good, just as you would want a brilliant maths teacher and an expert in maths and expert in history, we need that same expertise in this part of the curriculum. And it can't just be seen as an add-on. It has to be really well delivered by people who have the knowledge and experience. Because too often, what we see is a history teacher, for example, being asked to teach sex education. And I interviewed history teachers who say, I'm just, I'm not qualified to do that. And I'm not comfortable doing it. I don't have the expertise. I can't um, teach consent. I can't do that. And it has to be, schools have to invest in this. And it is about investment in good quality provision. And Joanna, just quickly on this point, you say investment, but schools are constantly saying, we've, you know, we've no money anymore and the authorities haven't got any money. You know, we're all struggling with the cost of living crisis. So how do they combat that? And, and again, you're absolutely right, Lottie. It's the same for all of these services, including schools. But prevention costs less than crisis. And if you create a zero tolerance to all of these terrible things in your school, in your college, you are less likely to have a culture where these things become normal and you then have crises, you then have police investigations, you have child safeguarding practice reviews, you have all sorts of other things going on, which will be an awful lot more costly to your school than if you do that preventative work and you really do everything in your power to create a really healthy culture in your school. It will save you so much money further down the line. Excellent. Thanks, Joanna. Let's just move on because there have been some changes to the time frame of transferring pupil data when they change school, hasn't there? Will you just give us a bit more information on that, please? Yeah, and again, it's a really, really good um, change to the guidance because they're now saying that the designated safeguarding lead has to ensure that the child protection file is transferred to the new school within five days if at the start of term or if it's in term, it has to happen within five days. Now, again, we need to acknowledge for schools that that can potentially be a challenge, particularly for year 11, because you don't know where a child's going necessarily. Um, it depends on their results. Um, so uh, uh, yet again, another challenge for schools and colleges, but it's really good. Again, I've been involved in too many reviews where that information has not been transferred. And for the new school, it makes it so difficult when they just don't have this information, this crucial Im information about the vulnerability of that child and the risks around that child. Um, and it's so important that that information gets shared within this new time frame. So loads of changes to the document this year, Joanna. You've talked us through some of the major ones. Are there, though, any ch additional changes that you would have liked to have seen that aren't there or aren't clear enough, aren't really good enough? I think the only thing is what I said earlier, Lottie, around um, it would have been helpful if they had made it clear that some children don't know they're being abused. And that would be a good thing because when I'm delivering training and I'm talking about this um, schools often say I just we haven't really thought about that and you think it's normal these things that are happening in your home and it's very often the child who's being maltreated who isn't going to other children's homes where they start making comparisons you know you're and my child get to that stage where they come back from a 
play date and they say, mommy, why can't we have a cupboard full of chocolate biscuits and sweets that I can help myself to all day? It's not fair. So-and-so's mum is much nicer than you. Um, and our children make those comparisons. But a child who is suffering maltreatment in home, and again, it's really important to be clear that neglect is a form of abuse. We talk about abuse and neglect as if neglect isn't, but it absolutely is. That child is less likely to be going out and about and making those very healthy comparisons that our children make. And it would have been helpful, I think, if the guidance had made that much clearer. So Joanna, to just put you on stops, uh, just to put you on the spot then, Joanna, what would you have put in to do with that? Would you have made it so that each and every member of staff is looking out for that, you know, very clearly from as soon as they start at that school, they're looking out for those signs? I would say make it, just make it clear that children are not necessarily going to disclose and don't necessarily know that they are being abused. And I'd also add to what I'm saying about neglect. Another area is sexual abuse. Because often when people think of sexual abuse, they think of the violent acts, they think of rape. But what we know is that perpetrators of abuse, very often, um, if they are sexually abusing a child, they will sexually abuse a child in a way that they like. And it's something that is usually done by somebody who is known and loved and trusted by that child. And if you cross that line as the perpetrator, the child doesn't know. And it can be years and years and years before that child ever realises that they were being sexually abused. So I think it would have been helpful to have had that greater clarity in the guidance. But overall, Joanna, you think these will be useful and, and they're up to date to fit in with what modern society really needs in schools at the moment? I think it's good. Yes, it's absolutely. They've picked up on findings from reviews that have happened um, over the last few years. And again, it's the importance of learning. Um, either in your school, your college, but also nationally and for the Department for Education, learning from terrible things that have happened. And it's absolutely vital that we keep on learning all the time. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for your insight, your expertise, and of course, your time that you've given to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lottie. It's been a pleasure. We hope everyone listening has found this useful. If you're keen to learn more, there's information on safeguarding children and other content relevant to education on the High Speed Training Hub pages, which you can find by clicking resources on the website or take a look at our safeguarding courses. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.